Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Starving Writers Guild podcast. I'm your host, Tim C. So, I have learned something rather new today, that apparently I've been using my microphone incorrectly this entire time. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that? Me, who has, you know, very little knowledge about how to do this, screwing up. I mean, that's never happened before, other than every single episode I've ever produced. <laughs> So uh, thank you uh, to the people who pointed that out to me. Uh, You know, you would think with a microphone, it should be pointed at you, right? I mean, every other microphone I've ever seen used is used that way. Nope, apparently it's supposed to be uh, pointed up directly towards the ceiling. So there's that, and there's my incompetence of the day. So hopefully that'll be it, and we can move on. So thank you once again for your patience with the audio stuff that always goes haywire. Something always gets screwed up. Uh, So... We're just going to go in today, just deep dive. Uh, not going to go into the comics or manga today. I just uh, don't have the time for that, frankly. So we're going to go for our top 100 anime from number 30 to number 21. And today we will be starting with number 30. And number 30 is, of course, Space Runaway Ideon. Now, uh, this is a Sunrise production. It is also... Uh, highly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, and that controversial may be the wrong word, but feelings are mixed on Ideon from or Ideon or how the heck you want to pronounce it. Uh, I prefer Ideon, and basically it has to do with its ending. But we'll get to that in a moment. Now this is also another Tomino work, and this is around the time he starts getting his reputation, at least initially, for his kill 'em all Tomino. Uh, attitude. I believe uh, this right here uh, was one of the, in the midst of one of his biggest bouts of depression, if I remember correctly from what I had studied. Uh, so it definitely reflects in the series itself. And in fact, <laughs> in a very funny way, this actually inspired uh, parts of Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, as well as uh, Ultraman and Devil Man, uh, from what I understand. But what is Space Runaway E Day on about? So basically, Humanity has gone into the stars. We've uh, moved forward, making colonies on other planets. Uh, everything seems to be going fine until one day, as is always often the case. <laughs> An alien race called the Buff Clan, who look really much like humans, uh, attack and force this colony to uh, leave their planet behind. But at the same time, they end up stumbling upon this ancient robot uh, slash ship called the Adeon, and they use that to travel away and uh, escape from their enemies. I mean, a very, I mean, in a very Vifom, in a very um, uh, Star Blazers slash Yamato kind of way, but this, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, this did come first before any of those. Oh, no, wait, that's actually incorrect, uh, because Yamato actually came out in 75, so there's that, so... Anyways, as far as you show it proper itself is concerned, a place with humanity just trying to survive, and uh, <clears throat> as they're being pursued by the Buff Clan, as we learn about how these two races are actually tied together, like are they the same race? Uh, is there some genetic manipulation going on here? Uh, like what's going on with this? What is Edan? Why does there seem to be this giant, sinister amount of energy and emotion behind it? You know, and what does this mean? Uh, for the people inside it, are they using a weapon of mass destruction that's going to cause the end of everything? And that's one of the reasons why the Buff Clan are after them, uh, not only to gain access to the technology, but make sure that humanity can't use it uh, to its fullest potential. Uh, so you get 
sorry, uh, our main character, Cosmo, uh, he has, let's see, uh, he has an afro. Sorry, I was just thinking about that. I was trying to describe characters. <laughs> I just can't whenever I think of him. He's got this giant you know, 70s afro that looks so out of place, but, I mean, the man works. It's whatever. Um, so anyways, uh, he is he's your prototypical protagonist. Nothing too in-depth about him along the way. Um, and, of course, uh, we've got our our group of uh, our captain who, um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm having a bad time speaking today. Uh, so then, of course, we also have our Captain Bess, who is kind of our bright Noah XP of sorts, in a way that Cosmo's kind of an Amaro XP. Uh, and in his relationship uh, with the enigmatic uh, female, uh, she's not a pilot, it's been so long since I've watched the show. <laughs> I should really research things a lot better before I start record. <laughs> uh, Kerala is her name. And uh, the two of them, like, there's a real hope that's generated from them. They start, you know, obviously as enemies at the very beginning, but they end up in this very loving relationship in kind of a similar way to our Macross with, uh, was it Max and Milia? Uh, obviously this happened before all that. But uh, it just at this moment, because it seems like there's no hope, like humanity is just going to be destroyed, the Buff Clan is just going to wipe them out, but the two of them, their love for each other actually... Uh, seems to bring, like I said, a certain amount of hope that is unfortunately <laughs> crushed at the very end of the story. Uh, and that is where the controversy really uh, comes up from, is how it ends. I mean, if you've ever heard of Edam before and you've never watched the show, you've probably uh, read the meme, you know, Edam blew up the universe. <laughs> that is not true. It is grossly over-exaggerated, but it sounds a lot better than the damn blew up the solar system, which, uh, if I remember correctly, is like all it does. It doesn't wipe out all life ever, but it does wipe out humanity and the Buff Clan in the process, uh, depending on how you look at the movie with, you know, the souls and all that's happening there. Uh, so it ends on a very huge downer. And, I mean, as I've noted before, I'm not really someone who really gravitates to uh, that type of storytelling. But... At the end of the day, the reason why I do is because it feels earned. Because most downer endings don't feel earned. I mean, they're more of a you know, Chinatown kind of situation. It's like, oh, well, there's no hope, and you all suck, and only the bad people are ever going to win. And, yeah, it, it didn't feel earned in Chinatown, in my opinion. Uh, but in Edeon, it definitely feels well-deserved because there are so many opportunities for humanity and the Buff Clan to come together, but then something will rise up and cause them to fight again. So it leaves us with that very hopeless, very poor, depressive, Tomino kind of way. That the way the man was feeling at the time was just awful. So that was our number uh, 30. We're going to go on to our number 29, which is another downer of a series in certain respects, Kaiji. I watch Kaiji... For the first time uh, during quarantine, and I, the reason I had watched it is, um, you know, there was someone who, uh, an online presence that basically most of the time when they bring up something, it's like, I'm going to end up liking whatever they like, and I decided to test it out, and once again, I liked it, and Kaiji essentially is a story about the evils of humanity and the evils of gambling. I mean, there's no other way around it. It's a show based around gambling. And it showed that anyone who keeps going into this is a fool. 
and is going to get screwed over by anyone because you cannot, no matter how skilled you are, control everything in the game. Some, the house is always working against you in a way that you know, humanity, you know, you know, large corporations, the people in charge are, are always against you in this regard. So it's a very uh, cynical look at humanity. So it's something that does need to be said. And it does earn it within the series. It's not exactly grimdark itself, which would really turn me off of it. But it does feel like, you know, these people actually exist out there in society. And I can appreciate that, even as someone who definitely prefers things to be a bit more lighthearted. But there's a reason it's up so high on my list. And much like Yudeon there, uh, there are lots of really good moments between the characters in the series. There are very, very heartwarming uh, tenderness between Kaiji. He's a really, he's a huge jerk. But some of it, like, well, he's going to be a jerk because of everything he's gone through. I mean, he starts a series, he had signed a loan for his friend, his friend ditched him, and now he's expected to pay it back, and since he can't, he is now being taken to this fancy little tournament on a cruise ship, I believe, in international waters, and now he's got to fight for his life in all these gambling games. And if you've never once been terrified of rock, paper, scissors, uh, then you, my friend, need to watch Kaiji, <laughs> because it has some of the most tense moments in fiction. And there's no other way to explain it without actually watching it for yourselves. It's just this lovely, uh, I mean, mix of cynicism, yet there's hope dashed in there. And this very intense, like, oh my gosh, what, what is he going to put scissors? Is he going to pull this certain card that's going to screw everything up? Uh, or if I bet this way, I could make a lot of money and I could, you know, solve a lot of people's problems. I could make up for all the people who've died along the way, which by the way, uh, in a very, uh, squid game kind of sense, as for those of you who have watched more modern things, um, it's essentially, it's system is rigged against you as well. I mean, there's, it's possible for you to win, but it's going to take blood, sweat, and tears. And Kaiji suffers immensely throughout this show he gets betrayed by friends over and over again uh he gets the idea that he can solve problems by gambling which as the series shows like one of his major themes like i said before is that if you gamble you're a schmuck <laughs> so uh oh, what else can i say about kaiji but it is such a great thriller uh a wondrous I mean, it's not really going to improve your opinion of humanity much in the same way that Ideon wouldn't either. But I'd say if you're in the right headspace, go out and check Kaiji because it is most definitely worth everyone's time at least once in your life. And to see him uh, struggle uh, through this challenge of insurmountable odds and to get into the heart of the darkest depths of society and what we need to do to face them and fight back. So that is... Our number 29, we are now moving on to our number 28 in the final bit of our JoJo's Bizarre Adventures, part two. Now I know, I had a lot of people uh, come up to me, well not really in person, but on Twitter, talk about like, how could you ever put this over part three? How could you put this over part four or five or whatever? And well, uh, number one, this is my list. <laughs> So I can do whatever I want. Uh, number two, it's down to personal opinion. And in my opinion, part two is Rocky uh, near his most fun. I mean, at his most fun. I mean, the only other thing that compares to me would be part seven and part four. 
And since Part 7 hasn't been animated yet, I can't put it on the list in good faith. So, Part 2, we get our boy, Joseph Joestar. And I had said before when we covered Part 1, my favorite JoJo is Jonathan Joestar. So why in the world would I ever choose his antithesis, his, his part, as my favorite JoJo's? Well, for why I like Jonathan, Joseph, like I said, his antithesis, I like him not as much, but almost as much as his grandfather. Because he is scum. (laughs) At the very beginning, he's a huge jerk with a heart of gold. He's going to pull every trick in the book in a way that Jonathan would scoff at and be so upset at how dishonorable his family had gotten. But that's what this part needs. It needs someone who's a bit more unscrupulous, who's not as fettered by, um, not necessarily morality, but uh, by the law and rules. And Joseph provides that in spades. I mean, you think we're going to start off with a bunch of vampires again with straight so, but then (laughs) he pulls out a Tommy gun. Where? Who cares? This is this is part two. You just have to accept at this point, like things are just going to happen, and if you can't, you can't accept this series. So he pulls a Tommy gun in the middle of a crowded restaurant and blows straight so away, and then eventually kills him on the bridge later on by pretending not to care about the hostage he has. And it opens up so spectacularly, and then we get our boy, Ario Speedwagon, continuing the Speedwagon Foundation as one of the greatest gifts that continues to this day. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah, in part seven, eight, there's a Speedwagon Foundation. Yeah, 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 but it's it's different. So, so from part one to part six, uh, they are the essential allies of the JoJo family. But him coming across the stone mask, which he knows is bad juju, can't have that going around. But then, of course, this is in the 30s, so who's going to be there in a very Indiana Jones-inspired section of JoJo's? The Nazis. <laughs> and what do Nazis do? They ruin everything for everyone else. And that's exactly what happens. Which, of course, then unleashes the pillar men on the world, the ones who created the stone masks, who uh, caused all this devastation in humanity's past that we're only just now uh, recovering from to an extent. And they are much stronger than Dio. Uh, they are much stronger than the vampires that they made. So this amps up the threat level causes Joseph to learn how to use Hamon effectively and instead of being self-taught he has to go to Lisa Lisa and learn with Caesar about how to actually use his powers correctly and other than the unfortunate uncomfortable little bathing scene with Lisa Lisa uh, I mean there's not too much you know fan service in this it's pretty solid on that end and of course we all know why uh, for those of you who've seen the part why him looking at her is so bad <laughs> But what it has, it has a true spirit inside of it. This zeal for adventure of just having these wacky, zany things happen while also telling a very serious story at the same time. And Joseph is definitely one of the best JoJo's protagonists we're ever going to have. And even when he mellows out a bit in his old age, you still see that feisty old man in parts three and four that erupted in part two. And once again, like if you turn your brain off for this you're going to enjoy it a lot more. If you're looking at part two with a very logical lens, like I typically do, you're going to be in for massive bits of disappointment. (laughs) Uh, The way Joe, uh, 
excuse me, Joseph takes down cars? Uh, sure, why not? If you're looking at it logically, you're just hurting yourself. Just move on. If you look at anything else he tries to pull, don't think about it. Move on. His clackers, they're so cool. He uses them like once. <laughs> so JoJo's Part 2, what it does... Like I said before, it's heavily inspired by old serials, uh, much in the way that Indiana Jones was inspired the same way. Uh, so you can definitely see the influences on that, the you know going to new locales and new destinations and fighting strange enemies across the world. It's so much fun. Definitely recommend you guys to check out, well, just start with part one. I am not a part skipper. So anyone who tells you that, they are the scum of the earth. <laughs> and... Unworthy. No, no, I won't say that. Let me edit that. So that's it for our number. I believe that was our number 28. We will be moving on to our number 27 with this After War Gundam X. Now, this, of course, is my second favorite Gundam series. So those of you who've been keeping count at home going, well, there's still so many Gundam series. What could be number one? Well, you'll find out. But not on this episode. We've still got a bits to go uh, before we get to my number one Gundam series. Now, Let's, since we're not talking about the number one, we're talking about the number two. We're going to talk about After War Gundam X, which is one of the most compelling uh, side universes created in the aftermath of UC not being the main uh, launching point for new stories to be told. And we get some very familiar uh, ideas uh, af after a while through the show, through world building, in that this world is a world where if Amaro had failed his mission. This would have been the end result because Earth is an apocalyptic wasteland. After having been attacked by uh, their version of uh, Zeon in this story, and that of course being the very imaginatively named Space Revolutionary Army. <laughs> so, after we're going to Max, what's it about? Well, after all those events have happened, I believe it's been seven years since the colonies were dropped on Earth. Like, so, slow, civilization has slowly been coming back. You've got a bunch of fractured countries around the world. And we have our young protag here. Uh, <clears throat> one of the best in Gundam. My good friend. Your good friend. Garrett Rand. He is, like, in some ways similar to our Joseph. A very uh, deterministic, uh, making plans on the fly, kind of opportunistic hero. Uh, starts off a little bit anti-heroish, but over time he becomes a lot better along the way and actually gains an appreciation for life and appreciation for the people he's fighting for. And of course we've got our young uh, Tifa here, who is our new type at the very start of the series. And her enig enigmatic, blah, enigmatic nature, gosh. And she of course is essentially our uh, living MacGuffin of the series, since you know new types in this universe uh, are still the same as as what would be in UC Gundam, highly sought after. So plenty of people would want to use her powers for their own ends. And at this point in time, she's being under protection of the one of the best captains in Gundam, Jamil, my man who doesn't just settle for the bright slap, goes in for the punch, and delivers a stellar speech to uh, Garrett about. The uh, responsibility of adults to talk, uh, excuse me, to instruct those younger than them. Uh, I actually have the quote pulled up so I wouldn't forget. Uh, it's when a man strays from the right path, 
a kind man needs the courage to raise his fist and correct him. And it's a quote that could easily be abused. And in the way, like, especially in OG Gundam, uh, Bright definitely misuses the Bright slap. Even though Amuro is being a little punk, he doesn't deserve that in the moment. Now, if Bright had been older and had used that, it's it comes from a sense of, of wisdom and military rule that you know, can be a little difficult for our modern sensibilities to handle. But at the end of the day, the purpose isn't to hurt. The purpose is to correct. And we can argue all day of whether or not that's an effective tactic. But in the show proper, it is used quite effectively. And I am very, uh, I, I'm very appreciative of their relationship together as you know, mentor and mentee because you learn along the way that Jamil is the reason why the world is the way it is. He was the Amaro of the series, and when he was facing his Char XP in, uh, oh gosh, what was his name, uh, Lantro, he failed because he fired the first shot that caused everything to implode. And it's just awful seeing the way he was and in seeing, but then so comforting and inspiring to see his growth from where anyone else would have given up, but he kept pursuing things. And then that inspires Garrod to go into space to rescue Tifa, uh, stops the Space Revolutionary Army to the point where our Char XP actually becomes our hero in a way that Char never could, even in Zeta. So, after war, Gundam X, one of the most amazing mecha series, one of the best Gundam series in the world. That was our number 27. Our number 26 is going to be a very surprise member of the list, because I'm fairly certain most of you will have never heard of this, and that is Armor Hunter Mellowlink. Now, to those of you who've watched Photoms, you will know that this is a spinoff of that. And normally, spinoffs don't jive well with me, but this one, what did I have Photoms at, like 50? Yeah, this one far exceeds uh, 51 far exceeds the original it's based off of because essentially this is taking place like a little bit before Votom starts if I'm remembering correctly but this is a revenge story so to those of you out there it's a little squeamish around that wanted to warn you in advance like there's going to be a lot of death in this one uh, a lot of people being taken down on this uh, path of vengeance but it tells an amazing story of Mellowlink who is the sole survivor of his platoon who was essentially they were wiped out for uh, knowing too much about something they never should have found which oh by the way i do need to make a correction i think i said that the ps for uh votoms was psychic soldiers I, I was definitely way wrong about that it's perfect soldiers which is one of the horrible truths uh, that he learns in this is the start of that program so as a result he's being hunted down and try and try to be uh, so that they can wipe out all knowledge of the people who knew about what happened here, and he, in the meantime, is going after the people in charge of that uh, annihilation of his team, so that he can get revenge for all of them. And it's a very beautiful visual every single time that he manages to track down one of these people, where he uses four fingers, I think, yeah, four fingers to wipe paint or blood or whatever he has on hand all over his face. So that's when you know that he right there means business and people are going to die. And it's a stunning tale of revenge. Like once again, uh, revenge is one of those very slippery slopes 
in storytelling. It's like you can easily go too far in one direction and just have your hero come out as a complete and utter psychopath. And that is not a good story. I mean, because then who do you cheer for? If he goes off the deep end and starts becoming even worse than the people he's going after, like I have no one to cheer for in that. And then this one, Melanink struggles immensely with his guilt of being a soul survivor, of being uh, of the things he's done to get rid of the people who killed his platoon. But he doesn't ever lose himself along the way for long. And a huge part of that is the friendship and romance he strikes up with uh, one of the best girls of all time, uh, Lucy Ramon, who, wow, I could listen to her say you say a boyo all day long. <laughs> she just got one of those voices. It's like, oh, wow, just keep talking. But she herself is a huge central figure of him not losing his humanity as she's struggling not to lose her humanity as well because you find out later on that she is definitely a lot higher in nobility than the people around her and she's looking for revenge in her own way and the two of them working together are able to not, like I said earlier, lose their humanity or are able to find their humanity in each other in a very subtle love story between the two of them. So Mellow Link uh, definitely one of the greatest series of all time in my very highly rated opinion. <laughs> and that will take us to our number 25 with the space, bleh, space battleship Yamato slash Star Blazers for my Americans. This show slaps. Uh, once again, we have some stellar uh, designs by our good friend, the man, the myth, the legend, Leiji Matsumoto, who, while not a direct art designer or uh, drawer on this series, was a producer of Yamato and is one of the people behind the scenes who is really making the story, from what I understand, of its creation. So Space Battleship Yamato takes place. We're on Earth. We've tried to move out towards our own solar system. However, we have attracted the attention of an alien race known as the Gamelons, and they have a similar way to after we're going to Mex, but way worse, uh, attacked Earth by pelting it over and over again with asteroids and stuff like that, to where the Earth is a barren wasteland, so humanity has to live underground, and there's really no hope of terraforming until one day uh, a couple of pilots stumble upon a mysterious alien woman uh, named Queen Starsha. Excuse me, no. That was her sister. Uh, was it Sasha? Yeah, yeah, Sasha, who, yeah, sister of Queen Starsha, who has sent a message to humanity, like, look, like, we know about what the Gamelons do. Uh, my people can help you out. You just gotta make your way to planet Iskandar. So they retrofit the old uh, Japanese, uh, <clears throat> was it submarine or battleship? I can't remember. Yeah, battleship doesn't make sense. Excuse me, sub submachine doesn't make sense. It's a battleship Yamato, uh, that being from World War II. So for my uh, uh, American friends out there, a uh, little dicey sometimes when you get that bit of Japanese nationalism that kind of comes in at times. But I don't think that was the actual intent, but people have definitely abused it for such a matter as that. But it is used as humanity's last hope. Uh, we don't have any ships anymore for the most part. They're being destroyed by the Gamelons. We don't have the technology available to successfully fight them. But what we do have 
our Starship's plans and her designs that we're able to manipulate for our own ends, and that creates the Yamato, which, uh, or um, the Argo, for those who watch Star Blazers, sending our crew across space to track down Iskandar as we get through a very peppy and wondrous uh, theme song that is one of the biggest classics in the genre. And along the way, we learn more about who the Gamelons are. We learn more about uh, Iskandar and its relation to Gamelon and why they feel the need to take out humanity, why they're having this empire around, what they're seeking to protect too, because what this does is it doesn't do the usual trope of, well, they're the enemy, therefore we don't have to care about them. No, these are still people. They live their lives. It's not glamorous. It's a uh, fascistic society. But that doesn't mean that every single member of that society is evil. It means that they're living under oppression. Even the people in charge, like, there's still hope for redemption in them. And Dessler is one of the greatest uh, villains and eventual anti-villain over time uh, in fiction. And his relationship with this, with the crew of the Yamato and them eventually learning to work together after uh, they're able to reach uh, Iskandar and get the things they need to help revitalize the earth and how they move past from that even though there's still obviously going to be some old wounds left behind you get to see them working together in a very fun way where you care about someone that at the start of the series you despise but then you learn more about him you learn more about their culture and that's something that should be learned as a society today we are too quick to demonize and we should demonize let me put that out there we should demonize those who are abusing their power to harm i mean i try and keep politics out of this show as much as possible but the thing that comes off the map right now would be vladimir putin and what he's doing in ukraine right now now once again not trying to politicize anything here but Anyone with a brain can look at that and go, oh, that shouldn't be happening. Now, do we then go and say, oh, well, the Russian people should suffer too because of the actions of their president? Well, they're the ones who elected him. Well, let's look at why he's there in the first place. A fear-mongering and making the people think that if they don't put him in power, they're going to be less than, bad things are going to happen to them. And that's how leaders like him do. I mean... You just have to look through history. You got Mao Zedong. You had Adolf Hitler. Uh, over and over through history, we had these terrible rulers who uh, abused their positions of power by fear-mongering, by causing people to think, well, if we focus our attention on these people, then the ills of our society will be gone. And that's just a great message we all need to learn is that, look, yeah, definitely the people in charge who are doing these terrible things need to be brought to justice. But it is not you know, the farmer's fault that this is happening. This is not the low-ranked military guy's fault that this is happening. He signed up because he thought this is what he needed to do. But well, that's what happens when you have intense propaganda. So I think I've ranted on a little too long about that. So I do apologize for those who were a little put off by that discussion. So we'll move on from our number 25 to our number 24, which is Death Note. One of the best series ever made now death note is very uh what's the word i'm looking for here uh as far as i'm concerned death note is a very personal series to me and i really wanted to put it higher up on the list at a certain point when i was compiling it but you know other things just that were just better 
but like I said, Death Note is very personal to me because it happened at a very uh, young stage in my life when I was in high school, watching it for the first time. And I was getting back into anime at that moment, and this was brand new. It was dark and gritty, and you got to see this uh, really charismatic guy start you know, killing people who were doing terrible things. And you go, well, obviously he's the hero. We should be looking up to him. But as time goes on, I mean, even from the very beginning, you see that Light Yagami is not the person you want to have a, a book like the Death Note. Because he's going to use it for his own ends, saying that he's going to use it for the benefit of all. When he clearly has his uh, God complex very early on in the show about how the world would be better if he was the one in charge, if no criminals were allowed, if, you know, the death penalty was automatic for everyone. And at the, as a young man at that point in time, I was like, I was on light side for the vast majority of the show, right up until he died. And then I, when I was sad that that happened, I had a huge revelation of myself. It's like, wait, why do I want him to win? Because I was denying all the things that I didn't like about him because of the fact that I liked what he was doing. And that really messed me up. It's like, am I, am I really that bad a person for doing something, for believing in someone like that? What, what would I do if I were in light shoes? I mean, honestly, even today, I would not trust me if, you know, Shinikami came out of nowhere and you know, dropped the book right in front of me and I was allowed the power to kill those that I don't like. I mean, yeah, I would justify it and say, oh, well, I'll kill this political leader here and I'll kill this terrorist here. But then that's where it starts. But it's a very huge, uh, very daunting, slippery slope from there. And I frankly wouldn't trust anyone with that power. I mean, not even myself. As I've grown over the years, like the, the temptation would just be a bit too much for me. So that's for the personal part of the story. Now, as to the actual show itself, Death Note provides a stellar look into a rivalry slash friendship slash war with Light and L, who are two super geniuses that are too smart for their own good. Like, L knows that Light has done something with that has started killing people, but he can't prove it. And it's that part that, like, really kills him inside because, like, he could easily just kill Light and that would be it. And that he knows things would stop. But if he's wrong, he can't allow that to be true. And in Light has to figure out what is L's real name because he's limited by the rules of the Death Note which provide some real tension in every scene they're in working together to try to find the real L, the, the fake L uh, excuse me, not, not L, uh, Kira the real Kira, the fake Kira the second, third Kira all these things going along until it reached that climax to where light outsmarts him and all he needed to do was to find that name and L dies, and that's where the series changes. I would argue for the worse. And that's one of the reasons why it's as low as it is, is that the second half of the show is definitely not the top-tier uh, writing that the first half of the show got. However, it is still good. It's just not as good. And Nier and Mello don't hold a candle to L. I mean, Nier obviously wins in the end, but... I mean, you really wanted someone like L to win after you, you do some soul-searching there. 
but it stops Light's journey ultimately, and especially in the sequel manga, the one shot that was uh, done. His legacy is that he's a crazy guy. He's a murderer, and he killed all those people. It's like he thought, I'm going to be revered as a god. It's like, no, that's not how things work. You're just a human. You don't have the power to say that you're God. And it's a very tremendous series. Very, the running themes are like uh, humanity and our relationship to the divine and our pride and our uh, inability to see our own flaws and how we would be terrible, terrible uh, Avengers uh, if we were given a, a situation like this because our own personal biases get in the way and that really there's no such true thing as a neutral understanding of a law from a human perspective because we are led away by our emotions and our thoughts and our logic which do not represent the logic and thoughts and emotions of others so death note a timeless classic if you guys have not watched it i mean like what are you doing like shut this off go watch death note 37 episodes do it right now that's it for that next up is our number 23 which in a much lighthearted series is Mob Psycho 100. Yes, this of course is written by one of One Punch Man fame. Uh, in my opinion, this is the better of the two story-wise. I like One Punch Man more for the fights. Uh, but Mob, obviously, if I stand back, look at it from a, as possible, a neutral perspective, way better as a show. And of course, I don't have One Punch Man on the list because it's not done yet. The uh, series proper, uh, what this does is it shows a great journey of Mob uh, as he grows up from this young man who is unsure of himself and even with all this phenomenal cosmic power he's still just a kid and yeah sure in any other series like he'd be way cooler for that but actually what his psychic powers actually do is draw him away from people and he doesn't want that. He wants to be normal. It doesn't like he hates his powers. I mean, there is some frustration over time, but like he wants to identify with his peers and to be accepted. And of course, we get one of the best characters in all of fiction, bar none, Reagan Arataka, my man. <laughs> Which says a lot about me that a con man is uh, in my top tier. His mentorship of mob while at the same time being so scummy yet so lovable uh to mob as his protege like he treats him like dirt he pays him so poorly and he's such a fraud but at the same time he gives some of the best advice that mob needs in his life to grow as a person to uh, just be better than himself and to have him not rely on his powers to make him special it's truly mob himself that is the special one there and the the powers are just a perk and too often in fiction we see uh superheroes and you know just other differently powered characters who that's their sole character trait is that i am so good because i have these abilities and that's such a shame that it takes a series like Mob Psycho 100 to reveal the, the awfulness and hypocrisies of stuff, something like that. Because, yeah, Mob is the strongest person on the planet. But that doesn't make him interesting. What makes him interesting is this struggle with himself to connect with his peers, to be better than himself. And, of course, we have the biggest bros in the world. Everyone should have the Body Improvement Club in their lives. Because, yeah... 
I mean, <laughs> they're a bunch of chads. But you would expect them when they're first introduced to be a bunch of jerks who look down on those who aren't as, you know, buff and, you know, physically active as them. But they are the most supportive and loving people in the world. And you've got to just enjoy every time they show up on screen. And they're the way that they just keep prepping Mob and just showing him love that he is working. He's trying to be better. And they're encouraging him every step of the way. It's so heartwarming and lovely that I'm just going to gush about uh, Mob Psycho because I mean, that just continues along the way. We can meet all these very interesting characters who have very different outlooks on society and you've got mob's brother who thinks of himself as lesser because he doesn't have powers uh you've got uh got uh teru who is easily who mob could have become if he started to rely on himself and you've got dimple uh, just as bit of a as big of a fraud as reagan sometimes but who at the end of the day is such a support to mob despite the fact that he's also fighting against him the whole time and scheming but then you've got our villains as well in uh, Claw. And some of the best moments are in that first season to where uh, Mob is struggling. But he gives, gives his powers to Reagan, who, of course, doesn't understand what's going on. But he uses them so effectively. And with speeches that help break down these people who keep thinking that the only thing that makes me special are my abilities. He's like, no. You are a person. You're a human being. You have characteristics that no one else has. Quit making this your defining feature. Go out into the world. Get a job. Find people. Talk to them. Make something of yourself that isn't defined by something that doesn't matter in the end of the day. Mob Psycho 100 is a spectacular series. One that everyone should watch. The third season is... Uh, airing as we speak. I have not watched it yet, but I did. I finished the entire manga, or the webcomic, I should say. It's a beautiful story. So, guys, go check out Mob Psycho 100, which will bring us to our number 22, which is Samurai Champloo. Love Samurai Champloo. This, of course, is made by uh, the same people, uh, Watanabe, I believe, is the director of Cowboy Bebop, which, spoilers, is on this list. Where? You don't know. But Samurai Champloo is one of those stories in a similar way, uh, not, not similar, but in the sense that you have to turn your brain off at certain points to uh, JoJo's, to where you just have to accept what's on the screen. <laughs> if you're expecting uh, continuity consistency all the time, you're going to be screwed over. If you're expecting things to be taking place in the same era as the very beginning of the show and midway through the show and the end of the show, you're going to be disappointed. What Samurai Champloo does is we start uh, start our journey with uh, a ronin, well, two ronin, essentially. One of those we learn later is by because he killed his master. The other, of course, had no official master and just kind of trained himself to be better. And we get food our viewpoint character of the show who wants to find the sunflower excuse me <laughs> the samurai who smells of sunflowers and we learn along the way that this is her dad but it's to this point where we have these great this huge hugely amazing dynamic between the three of them you got Jin who's very calm and stoic and uh, you know kept himself together and we have Mugen who's rash and brash and violent and ruthless and he doesn't take kindly to anyone he just wasn't 
you know, won't talk straight to him. And you've got Fu, who is our Tsundere, who just, like, uh, is trying to keep these two together to help her on this quest to find her father. And the hijinks they get along the way, exploring uh, Japan in this time where things are shifting, like when it does keep a consistent chronology, to where we've got moments where like all the only Europeans who should be there are the Dutch, because at this point in Japan's history, they had closed things off to foreigners, uh, especially uh, since the shogun at the time saw the huge influence of the Catholic Church and the many converts to Christianity at that point in time. He, uh, we have the Amakusa Rebellion, which those of you who've seen Fate Apocrypha will know Shiro Amakusa, who led that rebellion, who thought that he was protecting the Christians in that nation uh, from the shogunate because they were denying them the right to believe what they needed, what they wanted to believe. And it's a very cruel period in time uh, for religion because, well, if you weren't this, if you weren't, uh, I believe it was Shintoism, uh, Buddhism, and Confucianism were the main ones that were allowed. I think a little Taoism was allowed too. But if you weren't those things, you couldn't practice your religion. I even believe there was a very small uh, Muslim population at the time. I may be making that up off the top of my head. No, no, I'm most definitely wrong. They were actually, in the 1600s, the earliest Muslims who had contact with Japan were traitors. It wouldn't be until the 19th century that they would, some of them would actually start to live there. So that's when Japan was starting to open up again. So anyways, uh, point being, we're in this very tumultuous time in history. The, the rebellions that happened a couple of years ago and all these things are uh, causing turmoil. And we get some very fascinating parts of just the world of Japan at that time and showing their culture, showing uh, the attitudes of the people there. It's a very fun, actually a very informative learning experience uh, for those of you. This is my actually introduction to a whole history of Japan I had never seen before as much as it doesn't rely on uh, keeping chronology. It actually does to, to a certain extent. And we find out that Fu's father was a samurai who participated in that rebellion. He is one of the few people who were trying to protect the Japanese Christians of that era. And you've got those who survived being uh, led astray by those who would say that they work for God. Uh, to the point that there's actually a term for these people, uh, the Kakure Kurishitan who were, uh, I think it literally translates to hidden Christians or something like that, um, and that they went underground and worshipped in secret, but it caused a lot of syncretism to happen, syncretism being like uh, involving local beliefs and uh, folklore and combining them with a religion like Christianity. So in similar ways to like in uh, modern Louisiana, we have a lots of Vadun influence that has uh, been incorporated with Christianity in, in worse ways, even in Mexico right now with the Santa Muerte quote, cult that has caused a lot of problems down there. But I'm losing my focus here. Samurai Champloo tells a great story of these three misfits as they're traveling across Japan, trying to find Fu's dad. And it shows their, their growth, like Mugen learns to rely on people more. Uh, Jen starts to open up. Fu starts to stand up for herself more often. And it's the three of them becoming such friends like you would never expect that to happen 
if this were to occur in reality but along the way they have become inseparable even when they leave like their spirits are connected so samurai shampoo amazing series that was my number 22 we're gonna go to our last one of the day as i hit my mic <laughs> and that is number 21 fate stay night unlimited blade works as far as the Fate series is concerned, I have seen the original Fate Stay Night, which is a terrible adaptation of the work because it combines multiple of the endings. Uh, you get the Fate, the Heaven's Feel, and Unlimited Blade Works there. I have not seen the Heaven's Feels movies yet. I need to get down and watching those because I've heard they're really well done. Uh, I've seen Apocrypha, like I mentioned earlier. I've seen Last Encore, God help me. <laughs> I have I've dabbled in Grand Order, but I refuse because those gotcha sides, like they appeal, like what we were talking about gambling earlier with Kaiji, like I, that gambler's fallacy works really bad in my brain, and I will spend money that I don't have to try to win something of no substance or value. And I know a lot of people enjoy it, so I'm not going to knock on you if you do. But I can't play freemium games because, I mean, I just relearned this lesson again with Genshin Impact. Uh, I just had to stop playing because that desire just to pull characters just hits me so anyways fate which has next to nothing to do with what i just said unlimited blade works uh, so for those who don't know fate takes three different sides you have your saber root slash artoria you have our rin root which is unlimited blade works and then you have sakura which is uh heaven's feel and it's kind of the path like which girl will shiro end up with in the end now Rin, of course, uh, my biases are out in the open here. My Sundares, love them. Rin is my favorite, hands down. It would go Rin, Sakura Saber. Uh, all good choices, mind you, but got to hear that Baka every now and then. It really helps the brain move. <laughs> but what Unlimited Blade Works does is it combines history and magic and mythology to tell a very compelling story of a fight to uh, have that one wish to try and change the world but then as time goes on you learn that that wish has been corrupted and of course uh, Fate Zero I forgot to mention earlier which will be higher up on the list we'll get to there when we get there helps fill in some of this background I actually watched Fate Zero first which I'm actually very grateful that I did because it helped fill in a lot of the gaps that Unlimited Blade Works wouldn't discuss I mean, mostly for time I mean with 25 episodes i mean you don't have as much time as you would think but it just uh, shiro as our main character sometimes can be a little bland but as he moves forward and learns about what he can do learns about his potential future with archer uh which is shiro of a different timeline who has descended into hopelessness and has just started killing anyone that he sees as bad in a very kira kind of way he looks at what he could be and then rises above to say, I'm never going to have that future come to pass. I'm going to be an actual hero of justice. And the very ways, like sometimes in Shonen, you get those those characters, they just, I'm going to be a hero of justice. I'm going to do this. And you know, everyone's going to be nice and people are going to love each other. And it gets very grating and it's awful. Hero starts off that way, in my opinion. But as time goes on, learns to be better. And it's so much better for the franchise that he does so uh, because uh, otherwise he'd be incredibly grating 
but as he goes through his character growth, as he learns, you know, sometimes you do need to kill. Sometimes, you know, I need to let these terrible things happen. And sometimes there are things worth protecting. And I can't ever lose myself in order to protect those things. And his uh, very rocky relationship with Rin. And she, along the way, starts slowly, very slowly, defrosting over time and opening up to him. And, you know, revealing more about herself and her struggles and what's going on in her mind and how their uh, relationship blossoms from that. It's so great. And, of course, uh, Artoria is there as well. And Sakura isn't as much as focused in Unlimited Blade Works. So... I won't talk about them as much as I would the other two because they're far more important uh, to this side of things. So what Unlimited Blade Works does, like I said earlier, it combines the mythology, religion, uh, history, all these spectacles together to create these different versions of uh, characters to show up as spirits to fight in this Holy Grail War, which, of course, <laughs> if we want to talk about some bad theology... <laughs> Let's talk about the Holy Grail as a whole, uh, originating in Arthurian legend, and then moving on from there to become something it never was. So that's a lot of fun. But then we get into the backstory of like why the Grail acts as it does. And of course, the legacy of um, Shiro's adopted father, who had suffered as a result of trying to make a wish to make the world a better place, but the corruption of Ahura Mazda caused the Grail to not be used like it should have been. And their struggle to fight against, uh, sorry, I lost what I was thinking there. Uh, I was going to say something, Gilgamesh. Uh, as our antagonist here, of course, with uh, with Kirei acting as the sinister priest in this Holy Grail war, uh, the two of them make for stellar antagonists. Fate Stay Night can be very difficult to get into. I recommend, this is me, starting Fate Zero and then going to Unlimited Blade Works. I mean, you can't go wrong with doing that. Uh, apparently, the Heaven's Fields movie are great as well. So I will be looking at those later on. But I do believe that is in our discussion for tonight. So thank you for hanging out with us once again. We are the Starving Writers Guild. We are writers helping other writers. Uh, we are Barbara Page, John Transylvania, and MC Ashley. You can find our works on StarvingWritersGuild.com as well as Amazon.com under our names. If you'd like to help us out with the podcast, please leave a five-star review. It really does help with the ratings. So until next time, see ya.